Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Uh, today's scripture reading will be coming from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 20, uh, verses 17 through 21, verse 1. Uh, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I have gone, out, gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come, come in from among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit, to you, commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight for cause. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. It's been a while since I stood up here to preach. Uh, your brief vacation from my voice is over. I am back. And uh, I hope that you will journey through this long passage with me. This is a passage so filled with rich stuff that I, without exaggeration, I think I could talk for an entire day from this passage. John Piper managed to squeeze seven sermons out of this particular text. And so, obviously, I don't want to just drone on and on and lose us in the amount of content. And so there's a lot in here that I'm just going to chop out and ignore this morning so that I can, sh- I can kind of focus the lens of our attention on a few very important things that I see in this passage that are relevant to all of us as a church. Are you ready to hear the Word of God? Where are your heads at right now, everybody? I, are you with me? Is your head a little distracted? Are you somewhere far away, somewhere else? Come back. Come back to this actual place There is actually something for you here, and I'm going to ask you to really attend with me, uh, pay attention to this. I think God's going to try to strengthen and shape our church through this word. So Acts 20 finds us near the end of the book of Acts, and in fact, um, near the end of Paul's life and ministry. And uh, he's urgently making his way back to the city of Jerusalem because he wants to be there for the Pentecost festival. I don't know if you've ever had this, your heart set on getting to a certain place by a certain date to make it in time for a certain special event. Maybe you have an adventure somewhere in your own life story of trying to get home for Christmas or home for Thanksgiving and the flights canceled and all that. Paul is in that kind of situation. By hook or by crook, he wants to make it to Jerusalem. And so he's in that kind of mindset when the ship that he's riding sets, sets port in uh, in a place called Miletus, or Miletus, however you want to pronounce it. And it's a port city about 30 miles away from Ephesus. And they decide to, um, 
to dock there for a while to load and unload the ship. And so he's got a few unexpected days of downtime. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were in Paul's life, as busy, as focused, and driven as he was, I would greet a few days downtime with a smile. Recently, my friend, I, I ran into my friend, Pastor Joshua King. He was supposed to go to Cape Town, South Africa. His wife was traveling with him. But I didn't see him when we got there. And, you know, with 4,500 people, I don't expect I would have run into him. But I ran into him finally the second day of the conference. And he was just arriving. And he said, you know, uh, our flight, there was a mess up with the flights and everything. We got, we got uh, unexpectedly delayed and stuck in Madrid, Spain. Poor guy with his wife in the romantic city of Madrid for a couple extra days. And he was sad to have missed the opening ceremonies of of the Cape Town World Congress on evangelization. But he was very happy to be stuck in a beautiful city with his wife for an unexpected period of quiet and peace. And so Paul gets that. But instead of using the time to veg out and chill, he feels compelled to reach out to some friends who are in the nearby city of Ephesus. Because his heart was really drawn to them. These were not just people he knew. These were really, really close friends. They were the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he summons them and they come. So they make this hasty trip of 30 miles by land to join him in this port city. And they spend a couple days together in a really happy reunion. And our text actually records for us the story of that reunion. And I see, uh, I see in this text some things that are really important for us to learn about the office of elder and pastor in the church, about those who lead at the highest level. And I'm sure every one of us has some opinion about that, don't we? Is there anyone in this room who doesn't care what kind of person is leading the church, who hasn't ever had a thought, wow, I can't believe that person gets to lead a church, or I'm so thankful that person gets to lead a church. I really believe that everything in life rises and falls on leadership. And where you see all kinds of problems. I mean, I, just the other day, I was at a restaurant where something was just really, really off about everything. And I remember saying to the person I was with, somewhere in here, there's a leadership problem at this restaurant. Everybody's just stopped caring And I just don't like spending my money here. I'm not enjoying anything about this experience. Leadership has everything to do with what it feels like to be in a place. Whether you're really there enjoying it or whether you feel stuck and kind of resentful about the experience. Leadership has a lot to do with why you're feeling the way you're feeling right at this minute. Right now. You know what I'm talking about? Leadership has a lot to do with that. If you read a lot of the current literature, uh, can we flip on the slides? Is it working? So if you read a lot of the current leadership uh, literature, especially spiritual Christian leadership, you're going to hear a lot of things like uh, creative communication, vision casting, organizational culture building, strategic planning. Do those phrases make you excited or do they put you to sleep? I see some people already asleep. Um, (laughs) I can see everything, all right? Do those kinds of words put you to sleep or do they excite you? Now, I'm really into this whole leadership thing, so I've bought over 220 books on leadership. I love reading about it, but the truth is so much of that stuff, while it's valuable and good, misses the heart of the issue, right? It misses the heart of the issue. At the heart of the calling of Christian leaders, especially elders and pastors, is this very distinct call to shepherd God's people, right? That is at the very heart of what it means to be an elder or a pastor of the church. Look what it says in verse 28. It says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The central calling of the elders of the church is not to function as a decision-making board of directors who cast strategic vision and implementation and stewardship of limited resources to meet all the goals with measurable deliverables and blah, blah, blah. That is not the function primarily of the leaders of the church. If we get this wrong, everything else we touch will be broken. 
We might have a phenomenally polished organization where everything looks glossy and it runs on time, it begins well. Everything works and yet nothing works. Because if the elders of the church get this wrong, the church will not be a church worth being at. Just about everything that feels wrong about being here at times, I think stems back to failures in leadership to have the central focus of our calling right in front of us. Listen, if things are, are, are not quite right, if the slides don't show up, or if, if the trailer's not here at the right time, if the, the sign is turned the wrong way, if I sit there and fiddle with my mic and, and my PowerPoints are out of order, all that stuff we can survive. It's a little distracting, but you won't go, man, I'm never going back to that church because this was a little out of tune today or that PowerPoint, he's talking about this and the picture was the wrong. You're not going to leave the church over that. Every time you've had a serious misgiving about a church, it's because somewhere at the highest level, somebody lost sight of what this is all about. And that failure to know the real purpose has caused a problem somewhere down the stream in our lives. The central calling of the elders and pastors of the church is to keep watch over the people of God. We need you to remind us of that because it is incredibly easy to forget that. And I've even talked to pastors of churches about our size who say, you know what, I'm not going to be too busy with our people because they need to learn what it's going to be like when we get really big. I'm not going to have time for them. I think what a horrific thought that we could actually be pushing our people away to train them for what it's like to not have us in their lives. The central calling of the shepherd is to actually keep watch over the sheep. There's another thing you should know about this office of elder. That the way the Bible handles the words elder and pastor and overseer are pretty much as synonyms. They're the same word. In other words, all six of us on that screen, in the eyes of God are the same office. You like that picture of Popo? That's when he, <clears throat> he had that bushy hair. Dude. He's, I can make fun of him because he's not here to defend himself. Um, he's preaching at a different church this morning. But those six men on that screen, in God's eyes, there is no real distinction. We make much of it in the human level because we say, oh, some guys are pastors, some guys are elders, as if they're two different species that could not possibly mix. But in God's eyes, when he looked at harvest and, and you asked the question, how many pastors does this church have? The only correct answer is six. Do you get that? The Bible teaches it. We live it out as though that's true. And that's time for the whole congregation to understand that in the eyes of God, this church has six pastors, ordained ministers charged with the central calling be shepherds over God's people. If we get that wrong, nothing else will matter that much. And so I want to make sure there is clear teaching about that. Now I'm going to spare you looking at our faces for the rest of this sermon. We as a, as a board of elders have been reading a book together that has, I think, revolutionized the whole way that we understand our calling. It's a book called The Shepherd Leader by Timothy Whitmer. And in this book... He says things that it's not like we've never heard them before, but the Holy Spirit is using this book to awaken something in us that is a very, very deep conviction. And it is about embracing our call to shepherd God's people. You know, I love something that my friend Min Chung down at uh, CFC Covenant Fellowship Church down at U of I, he says this one thing that really gets through to me. He says, you know, there's a huge difference between belonging to a church and going to a church. And here's what he says. If you die and no one even notices you're gone, you might go to that church, but you don't belong to that church. If you sin and you're derailing your life and you're going off the deep end, acting completely nuts, and no one comes and talks to you about it, you might go to that church, but you don't belong to that church. In other words, if all you do is fill a chair in this building one day out of seven, you go to harvest, 
But in real experience, it couldn't be argued that you actually belong to this church. And the difference maker is not simply your attitude or your engagement, but whether the shepherds of the church have seen you and are keeping watch over you. That is a big part of the overall experience of everyone who goes to this church. And the truth is, for some of you, you've been waiting for somebody at the highest levels of leadership of this church to get this. And I'm trying to reassure you that we got it. And now we need your help in prayer to actually do it. We have understood it. We have accepted it. We have been rebuked in our hearts by failures in this area. And we have recommitted ourselves in earnest. Not just to be decision makers and budget planners and all that. But to really keep watch over the people of God. We're trying to work out what that looks like in practice. But we want you to know this. If, you, if you're a part of this church family then somewhere along the way, someone should know you. Really, you feel like you're seen, like you're understood, you're heard. That somebody knows what's going on in your life. And that if something is going on in your life that ought not to be going on, somebody will love you enough to sit down with you and make sure that that stops happening. If that isn't going on, then what do we exactly have here at Harvest Community Church? Do you get that? I mean, that's what makes a church a church. Now, I also want you to know that it says keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, which means that we have a responsibility that's pretty intimidating. And if you just see three pastors at this church, well, it's game over already. There's no way that I can look out at this room of people. And we're at kind of a, we're, we're kind of a, at a lighter number today. But when everybody's out here, and if we include the children, we are well over 300 people. There is no way, I'm sorry, I, it's not that, that I don't have the desire. There is simply no way that I can give shepherding care to that many people. And that's why God has given this church six shepherds, because six are needed to bear the weight of the shepherding care and ministry. And so we're trying to work out what that looks like practically, but I hope that you will accept from us that one of us is going to try very hard, earnestly, to connect with you. And that doesn't mean your small group leaders and other leaders in your life are going to be irrelevant. We're not trying to take the place of small group leaders at all. We're going to have a differential level of engagement with different levels of people. But we want you to know that we don't want you to be invisible in the church or to feel like nobody ever notices what's going on. We need your prayers because that's a very good sentiment but that's going to be incredibly difficult to put into practice and action. I also see in this text a few practical elements of what shepherding ministry is. If we say to you, we'd like to shepherd God's people, what do you think that involves? What does that look like in actual practice? There are so many things in here. I've picked three things that I think are really important. I'm going to run through them blazing fast. You've got to fasten your seatbelts and hang on with me. But don't just tune out because you're like, only six guys are supposed to hear this sermon. Why didn't you just preach this one at a board meeting? Why are, you, why are you tiring us out with it? Because listen, these, these teachings are not simply standards held for the elders, but they are meant to be waypoints in the spiritual journey towards maturity for every Christian. These are not just for the six of us, but for all of us to hear. This is the road we're all on. And so I want you to, to heed the, the teaching of Hebrews 13:7. It says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and listen, imitate their faith. In other words, everything the elders are doing and are supposed to do, you also are on that same journey towards spiritual maturity. And so here's the first one. I don't know why, but I, I started with this picture and you'll see I've, I'm on a penguin kick for some reason for the rest of this message. But the first practical element I see of shepherding ministry is simply this, leading by example. Leading by example. Recently, I, I, I worked with Jeannie to hang a pre-hung door in the raw opening of my daughter's bedroom. I tore out the door, it's jammed, everything. There's this big rough hole, and we put a new door and shimmed it so that it's roughly square. And it took us like an hour and a half to do it. And when we were done, we're like, wow, I can't, we actually did it. We, we did this door. Now, here's the thing, okay? I didn't grow up seeing my dad once ever do anything with his tools. He could do surgery and save your life, but he could never, ever hang a door. So where did I learn it? 
Well, my brother-in-law, Jeff, who's, he's a computer programmer by, by training, but he's just really good with his hands. He had come to my house, and he showed me before with, the, with my kid's bathroom door how to do it. He walked me through it. And the thing is, there's a lot of do-it-yourself websites where they show instructional videos, and, and there's books you can get on this. But there is no substitute for somebody actually showing you how it's done, not just what the finished product looks like, but in what order you should do things. There are little things where he said, the videos and the books are going to tell you to do this. Don't listen to them. It's stupid. Do it this way. And as he showed me, he showed me only once, but he showed me so capably that I was able to do it myself the next time around. That is such an important principle in the development of the human being. You cannot learn everything that you're supposed to learn in isolation with a bunch of books and videos and the internet. And you know what? Asians in the room, please listen. Because this is such a strong prejudice among Asians is you learn everything with books. You know, it's, it's a thousands of year old tradition. You know, grass up, you read the book. But you know, the thing is, without someone showing you, the really hard stuff in life is almost impossible to get right. I've had a DSLR camera for about like seven or eight years. And I had the owner's manual. I tried reading it. I tried consulting books. But John Cho, in like 20 minutes, showed me more about my camera than in eight years of fiddling around with trial and error. That is the power of a living example showing you this is how it gets done. My pictures are actually getting a little better. Paul understood the importance of this when he said to the Corinthian church, I urge you then, be imitators of me. But it's a hard thing to say that to a group of people without being very careful that you are worth emulating, right? And so if we're going to be models living by example, it is critical that the elders and pastors of the church be worthy of imitation. And that's why Paul writes to them, keep watch over yourselves, not just over the flock, What's going on in you? Are you actually growing and living out the faith? Are you subcontracting the hard stuff, telling people you should go on short-term missions, you should volunteer for this, and yet we never go to any of those things. We never do the stuff that we tell others to do. Do you know how many Christian leaders are very eloquent in preaching against sin even though they are engaged in the same exact sins in their private lives? And so Paul says you have to mind the gap between what you stand for and say and how you actually live. Because if there's a discrepancy between the way a person teaches and the way that they actually live, it is going to be a huge, in some cases, insurmountable stumbling block to growing in Christ. How many people do you know who spiraled into bitterness and gave up Christian faith because somebody who was supposed to be a leader to them terribly failed them with hypocrisy, with a dual life that was never confessed. Somebody who said, follow me, and then they walked straight into the depths of a really dark life. And so he tells them, please learn to lead by example. Focus earnestly on the way you're living, on how well you're fleshing out in your own life the stuff that you're supposed to do. But here's the other thing. Integrity in isolation isn't much good to the church. For me to be a really, really worthwhile example all by myself, if it's kept a big secret, how is that going to be helpful to you? And so the implication is, don't just be a good leader, a good person. Live that way in close connection relationally with other people. If they don't see it in the real fabric of your life, they'll never really understand how to follow it. I think one of the tough parts about doing ministry, and some who have, have moved to the, this region from other parts of the country will testify this. There's something strange about the Midwest. There's a, there's a sense in which we will do fellowship to a certain level, and then we'll cut it off. We, we, you know, we, we are very balanced in our approach to spending time together, and we say phrases like, oh, I don't want to spend too much time with those people. You were just at our house for dinner last month. We can't have you again. That would be too much, right? And I think that's a strange concept. I think there should be the sense in which there's a group of people that we delight to connect with all the time because it's when you see each other a lot that you really see each other. 
If you see me once every three or, or six months in my home as my guest, all you're going to see is what I've worked very hard to project to you. Oh, yes, this is how we are. This is the kind of people we are. We've cleaned the house. We've prepared everything. It's always like this. No, it's not. But if you only touch my life once every six months, you're going to believe an illusion. You won't know what I'm really like unless you see me a lot. And especially when you see me with my fly down, with my morning breath, and with just, you know, like the dirty stuff, the the, the imperfect parts all out there on display. I do lose my temper. I show up late to things. I indulge in things like video games sometimes more than any self-respecting Christian leader should. And if you never see those things, and if you never see that it's more than just preaching, but in some quiet corners of my life, I actually do what I preach. I'm actually living it out, and it's costing me a great deal sometimes to do that. And I can't preach about it, I can't boast about it, but if you walk with me, you'll realize at some point, some of it is actually real. These people live like this. They don't just talk about it eloquently, it's there. And how will we ever see that in each other if we only see each other infrequently? If I'm so preoccupied with boundaries and privacy issues that you never really see me. I think the elders of this church are extraordinary people. They are some of the finest men I have ever walked with in my life. And I want you to taste that good vintage, but there's no way you'll do it if they're private people. I believe that Christian maturity and leadership should never be conducted in privacy, behind closed doors. The leader who nobody knows is the leader who is simply not being effective. And so one of the things that I hope will change is that you'll get a a real sense of who we are because we'll actually rub shoulders together more. I think this is one of the greatest arguments for the smaller church. And I'm not here to criticize the very large churches, but if they're honest about it, this is one of the greatest challenges to the big church. Is that the real sense of community and intimacy, while a buzzword, while wonderful in theory, is never realized because you can't do it with such a large group of people. It's my prayer that at harvest... We will really dig deep and the leaders will live life out in the open, not putting on a show, but simply doing as we do. And we will then become true examples in the body of Christ. I want you to get to know those guys who serve as lay elders in this church. And I believe that each one of them is as qualified to shepherd you as me or Frank or Jared. I would put them in a room with you as a surrogate for me in any situation and go to bed at night knowing that they have spoken God's truth lovingly and firmly and capably into your lives. And I hope now that as they begin to interact more with you, you will be open to that and that this will be a church that is knit tightly together. Do you realize that the first half of Paul's little sermon to his friends from Ephesus is autobiography. It's testimony. He gets halfway through the sermon before he gives a single command of instruction. And the whole first half of it is built on this sentence. He said, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. In other words, my life was never hidden away. I didn't screen my Facebook friends and all that. You just, if you ask to be my Facebook friend, I have to, I don't even care if I've never known you or met you. Just, I, I don't want my life to be this big secret. I'm a riddle wrapped in an enigma inside of a puzzle, whatever that, that line goes. I want you to see me as an open book. And I believe this sets the tone for all spiritual leadership and ultimately all spiritual life. If you're one of those people who doesn't even like using the, the jewel um, preferred card, the Dominic's Fresh Values card because somebody is tracking your grocery purchases, seriously, You're not holding national security secrets in your life by what you buy at the grocery stand. If you're obsessed with privacy issues, it may be because of pain. I understand that. I don't want to belittle that. But I want you to know this. The picture God has is that you will emerge from that great fear that drives you to obsess over privacy and boundaries. Because every time the the church, the family of God is pictured, it is one where the barriers have come down and there's transparency and people are connected to each other. This is wholeness in Christ. 
This is what we're working towards. And it's a beautiful but very difficult picture to arrive at. Let's never lose sight of that. Here's a second part of shepherding that I see is teaching God's word courageously. Teaching God's word courageously. I just like that picture because it looks like somebody's telling another penguin where to go. I mean, so it's this idea of like leading somehow, but that's not always as simple as pointing your flipper and going, hey, that's where the good stuff is. If it were that easy, man, I'd have such a, a, a greater sleep life. But I, I think part of my insomnia stems from the fact that this is very difficult to do. Now, I've often, asked, I've often made this, the observation, I, I am one of the people at this church who doesn't have a pastor. In fact, it's been years since I had a pastor. I forgot what it's like to have a pastor, and yet I'm your pastor. That's a very, very weird, weird thing. Okay? And so the question, it stands, it's a very important question. Who pastors the pastors? Who shepherds the shepherds? And that's an age-old question, and Paul gives the answer in this verse. He says, look, I know how lonely it is at the top. I know how, what it feels like to take care of others, and you wonder who's taking care of me. Here's my answer to you, shepherds, pastors, elders, leaders of the church. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those, all those who are sanctified. The answer for the spiritual leader is that the person who shepherds you is the great shepherd himself. And that is why it is so critical that for those who lead the church, our personal devotional life, our relationship with God in private is everything. Never trust a spiritual leader who does not, in your estimation, appear to have a deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, if that leader writes excellent books, if they always have every hair perfectly in place, they always have a wonderful answer to every question, but you don't get the vibe from them that they love this God of ours, that they're not just spewing teaching, but they're, they're, they're talking about someone they know, really know, relationally. If that's not there, lower your trust in that leader. The basis of our credibility and our spiritual authority is an overflow of our personal relationship with Christ. I think this is one of the greatest problems in the church in America today. And I don't say that as somebody critiquing the whole thing. I'm part of the problem is that those who lead the churches are not themselves being really led by Christ. I think that's why we see so much apathy in the church. Because everyone's saying we're in a noise-filled world. There's so many good words, so many slick images. But I haven't come across that person yet that I feel like is the real deal who fleshes out this deep, unwavering love, devotion for Christ. It's my earnest prayer that our elders and our leaders at this church will be such men and women. People who don't speak about God like we're writing his biography, but speak about God like we actually know him, love him, are rooted in him so that he is our pastor. And now out of the overflow of that, we're pastoring you. And several times in this passage, Paul makes this big deal about how courageous he's been. He says in several places, look, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. What he's saying is out of the overflow of my own life, I now minister to you. And there were times when I wanted to pull back because it was not easy to tell you the whole truth. The hard whole truth. But I never shrank back from it because in my own life, I was so thoroughly convinced that these words are truth, that they lead us to the place where our hearts are longing to go. So I'm not just telling you good advice. I'm telling you things in my own life which have borne so much fruit. I can't tell you anything else as tempted as I am to give in and to pull my punches. I have to tell you what I have to tell you. And here's what's interesting. If you go back one slide there. There we go. He says, out of that overflow, we have taught the word of God. Now, it says publicly 
That's kind of covered by me and Frank and Jared. We're the guys who do this for a full-time living vocationally. So we have more time for study and whatnot. And so we cover that public teaching of God's word. But here's the part that I think is really powerful. Where I think some of the greatest ministry of the church happens. He also taught from house to house. What does that tell you? That one of the places where the word of God is powerfully taught in a church is in your own home. In that personal setting where we're not talking about generalities, we're talking about your life. We're talking about your family, your finances, your career, your sexual issues, your spiritual doubts. That last one kind of horrified you. Why would I ever talk to a Christian leader about something that private? Well, it's the real life that you're living. It's the stuff that keeps you up at night. It's the things that make you feel lost and confused. And it is in those areas as we know each other and begin to preach the word of God with courage that something starts to come loose in your life. Knots become untied. You know, when Paul says, I did not shrink, I did not shrink, that is such a a word that I can relate to. As a pastor, there are times when um, the right thing to do is waging war with a thing that I want to do out of compassion and love. There are situations right now in my pastoral ministry where everything is screaming, don't be such a stickler. Give in, just do what they want because they, they want it so badly. And yet in my heart, in my conscience, I'm gripped by God's spirit. They, this cannot happen. It cannot go down this way. You need to stand your ground for what is right. Because an unfaithful shepherd will simply give the sheep what they ask for, even though that leads to where the wolves are. If a sheep says, I like to play by the edge of the cliff, it's only the unfaithful shepherd who says, well, if that's what you want, go for it. I don't care. You're your own sheep. The minute we do that, we become irrelevant in a picture where we are so important. I can't tell you that's been easy. Man, it has been one of the hardest things for me being at our church is standing my ground because I love you. There are moments when my skin is crawling. Where I'm sitting in my office or in a restaurant and we're talking and somebody's pushing back hard going, I just, I want to flee from this. I don't want to hear you anymore. And I'm just, I'm like, I know that's how you feel, but you need to really listen. Stay with me. Just follow through on this. And my skin is crawling because everything in me is going, just get out of here. This is so uncomfortable. Who signs up for this? Let's just leave each other alone. I may not look like that in my face, but seriously, in my heart, I'm like, ugh, I'm like shriveling all up. It's so uncomfortable. And that has been one of the great challenges of pastoral ministry. And if that's true for us, I want you to know it's going to be true for you along the road as well. We should not play games with the word of God. It is not only true when we like it, it's true all the time, and all of it is true. That's why he says, I didn't shrink from giving you the whole counsel of God. We can't pick and choose the passages we like All of God's word is true in every situation all the time. Some of you right now might be in a situation where someone's trying to tell you something and you just don't want to hear it. For you to hear it will take away from you something that's important to you. But I think a real shepherd teaches courageously even when the sheep are pulling away from the shepherd's king. Let me give you one last thing that I see is so important, maybe a little unexpected, but I think it's really there in the text. Another big part of shepherding is to do it with real feeling. To do it with what Aristotle called pathos. The kind of passion that makes an argument come alive that is perhaps one of the most persuasive things in an argument. Aristotle, who lived like 350 years before the time of Christ, he was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher, and he said, in the art of persuasion, there are three elements. There is ethos, which is my own integrity and character, the argument that comes from who I am and how I live. There's the argument that's called logos, which is the source of my truth, my reasoning and my logic. And then there is what's called pathos. Never mind logic, never mind the the appeal of my own life. It's what I just feel so strongly. Can't you tell that I really believe this. And pathos is a very important part of spiritual leadership. 
There was an old truism that was spoken all the time in seminary. They won't care what you know until they know that you care. Right? Have you heard that before? It makes for really good posters with kittens and things like that on there. And so I know it's kind of cutesy sounding, but I think it's so true. Some of the least effective Christian leaders are the ones whose minds are filled with answers, but they don't bleed for their people in their hearts. We love to correct, to fix, to repair, to scold, but not out of a place where we really care because our hearts are breaking that life is so hard for them. How much must they be in a difficult and lost place for them to be acting out in ways that are so illogical, so self-destructive? And yet some leaders come to a place like that, and before their hearts are even broken for those people, they go, well, I'm going to fix you. Of course you shouldn't do that. That's so stupid. Why would anyone do that? Just stop. Just turn around and do something different. It's so easy to say stuff like that, but our calling is not first to fix people or to berate them with logical truth. It is to love. It is to feel deeply. It is to be deeply connected and vulnerable to each other. And I hope that the elders of this church, the pastors of this church, will be those kinds of leaders. People whom you are convinced genuinely love you, care about you. In our private closets of prayer, we are shedding tears over what's happening in your lives. That's something I'm praying for, for myself and for all of us. He says, I serve the Lord with great humility and tears. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul is often portrayed as this cold, unfeeling, wooden guy who's just about the work. Man, John Mark failed us. Let's boot him out of the team. He stinks. And he's this kind of guy who's just so focused on the mission, he doesn't care about people. He has no feelings. Is that the way some of you who have studied the Bible think of Paul? As a machine, a cyborg? Because the truth is, if you read the the, the New Testament carefully, Paul is one of the people who felt most deeply, whose heart was so soft and was tender for the people of God. He did his ministry always with real feeling. And as you look at it, um, at at the depth of intimacy that's portrayed at the end, look how this whole reunion breaks up. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And when I leave, I hope, minus the kissing part, we have something like that. This isn't a bunch of guys who said it was really good doing work with you. You are an excellent colleague. Press on in the mission. We'll see you in a few years, I'm sure. It wasn't like that. Paul was saying, I don't think I'm ever going to see you again this side of heaven. This is our last meeting on this earth. But you know how we've walked together, how we've genuinely loved each other. What we have is not just cold, calculated colleague relationships. We have been friends. This is so important to me in Christian ministry that our leaders be the kind of people who have the capacity for deep friendship. We're not just about the work and the mission, but we love one another and we love people with real and genuine pathos, with feeling. And after all that was done, you know, when you say goodbye and they keep following you all the way out to your car, they just don't want to say goodbye. They walked with them all the way back to the ship and then up to the place where the guy said, if you don't have a ticket, you got to go down. And they're waving like this while the ship is going away. That kind of depth of intimacy and relationship, I believe that is a picture of what the church should be. Now, where does this come home for you? In what way can you identify with this? Well, let me begin with your community group and I'll, I'll wrap up with that. Is your community group a thing that happens one day out of the week where you eat dinner, you wrestle through a difficult Bible study, and and then you just share a few prayer requests and come home? Or is it something deeper than that for you? Is there a group of people in your life with whom when you have to say goodbye, there will be kisses and embraces and grieving and tears shed? Where you're not like, oh, it's nice hanging out with you guys for a while, but I felt like we were really, like, like, We're torn away from each other when we had to say goodbye. Is there a group of people for whom you feel so deeply that to say goodbye is an emotional experience? If it isn't there, then it indicts the way we're living now and it informs the way we need to learn to live. If you could say goodbye to the people in your life and just shake the dust of the city off your feet and go, hey, California, here I come. 
I pick on California because that's where everyone from Harvest goes when they leave here. California, here I come. Goodbye, Chicago winters. But what about goodbye, the people of Harvest? Goodbye, the people with whom my heart was so knit together. It's like ripping something out of me to go away from this place. I hope we'll learn to live with each other in a way that it feels like that to say goodbye. I hope the leaders of your church will be such people who will not go, uh, what was your name again? But they'll say, it, it was good to walk with you for the years that God gave us. We knew each other. We loved each other. And what we felt for each other was real. I hope to get there with many more of you than I have. And I hope that that will be our experience all together as a church. And I'm going to invite you to bow and pray with me. I think as I kind of enter that place, what some people call midlife, and I'm asking a lot of really troubling questions about what, what is my life stacked up to and all that? What am I afraid of? What do I worry over? I think that one of my greatest... Well, worry is a sin, so I won't call it worry. One of my greatest um, things I like to avoid in the future is that I look back over the years and say, man, we built a great organization at Harvest. I hope what we can say when my life is kind of winding down and I'm ready to say goodbye to this earth is that we really loved each other well. We wrestled together for God's word to come out in our real lives. We walked with each other through the collapse of marriage, the difficulty of raising teenagers, the failing of health to cancer, financial ruin, but also through the highs of watching our children go off and get married, of having children, of getting married, of getting promotions and new jobs, of the, the deeper joys of realizing things we never knew of God and His kingdom before. I hope that when we're getting ready to say goodbye to each other and to this earth, we'll look back and say, we didn't just build a great church Man, we actually lived this thing out. There was something there. That is the way I feel God is shaping my heart for the second half. And I think I'm ready to start second half of this game with a very different set of goals in the first half. I, I, want, I don't know if this message communicated that well, but I'll tell you this. Looking back, I hope that's what we remember about each other. Somebody loved me enough here. Man, if they hadn't said it, who would have? I needed that wrestling. Thank God for people who wouldn't dish me off to the next person and say, that's your problem now. They wrestled with me and they loved me. especially hope that your leaders called by God to be shepherds over you would model this way of living at Harvest Community Church. So just in a moment of quiet, let's pray to God for that. Start with where you are in your own way. Cry out to God. Let's not just spend our time being critical or seeing what isn't there. Let's cry out to Him. God, make this church like you always pictured. Make our leaders the kind of leaders we need. Give us the kind of community that we've longed for all our lives. Let's pray that to Him now. I'm going to ask you also, if you would, would you pray for the six pastors of this church? Pray that God would give us his own heart for his people. I'm going to ask you also to pray for yourself. And I think the place where it begins for most of us here, maybe with our own family and then also with our own community group. You have a choice 
whether you keep people at arm's length and just have a bunch of people you kind of knew or you experience what God always pictured when he called us together to be a family. So much of that rises and falls on your decision. Would you pray that God will help you live with the people closest to you in such a way that saying goodbye will be genuinely painful? That we have loved each other so well, so deeply, right now, that it would hurt to have to part. Would you pray that right now for yourself? God, I thank you for the people you have set in leadership at this church. I thank you for the privilege of walking with men who even behind closed doors love you so genuinely. Lord, I thank you for what a gift it is to the church that those who shepherd are men who walk earnestly with you. And I pray, God, that as we now accept fully this calling to be shepherds over your people, you would teach us how to do that well. And you would set the hearts of your people to receive this ministry and to grow from it. I pray you will teach all of us how to walk and live together in a way that is real. We all long for it, but it's hard to get there, Lord. So we pray that you would help us. That years later, when we remember our time at Harvest Community Church, all of us remember a place, a group of people, where we belonged to one another. Where someone loved us enough to say the hard stuff with courage. Where the feelings we shared were deep and genuine. Whatever needs to change for that to happen, Holy Spirit of God, I pray now, right at this minute, you would powerfully begin the work of changing us, moving aside the hindrances and the protests and shaping our hearts to live this way. When it's all winding down, may no one say that we were famous powerful or excellent, but let them say of us that we were healthy, that we loved each other well, that we were a family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.